What the Funk has returned, and I've got my guy, Michael Tanner. What's going on, brother? Not much. I appreciate this. When you when you reached out to me to to get me on this, I my first thought was, man, we're reaching the scrape of the bottom of the barrel here. But I'm <laughs> uh, I'm excited to be on it, and this will be really fun. I appreciate the the offer. From tripping over the barrel to bottom of the barrel, from what the funk to what the all right, let's let's not go there. Um, even though I did say we're allowed to swear on this podcast, ah. Michael, you hit my radar. Geez, it must have been about uh, a year and a half, two years ago. You just finished up at Mines. And you were doing a lot of kind of putting yourself out there, I feel like. Maybe some intercom-related content, mm-hmm. had a tech. Uh, you were working with, I think, Stuart Turley. Stuart Turley, the man. The man, right? And, and you were living up here in Colorado. And then briefly kind of fell off my radar. You were doing less content, right? Things had slowed down for you. You took a job at an operator, King, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk a little bit more about. Um, and then resurfaced, right? You're out there talking to some of my old buddies at, at W Energy Software and, and espousing the values of some tech that you guys are, are using today. And I thought, man, this is a guy who I've wanted to have on my podcast. I love having younger industry leaders who are looking to break the norm. You're not afraid to get in front of the camera. You're not afraid to talk about what you're doing or whatever trade secrets you guys have. So I'm thrilled, Michael, that you committed to this. Um, you're the director of FP&A at King. We'll get into all that. But the question I always ask, for my listeners' sake, who is Michael Tanner? Oh, man, that's a, it's a good question. Again, I appreciate you having me on. I, I think I'm, I'm somebody who's just naturally really curious. I've, I've kind of, you know, I will briefly touch on my background. I've, I've kind of lived multiple lives here. I work in finance now. I actually started out more in kind of the tech data space. Uh, migrated into more consulting, which you, as you know, it's kind of a jack of all trades. You learn a little bit of everything, and really, what it comes down to, it's more you get that you you cut that experience in sales. So I feel like I've lived a bunch of different and had an opportunity to live a bunch of different really cool lives in my brief time here. I guess in the energy industry, um, specifically oil and gas, but um, I, I just I love getting I love learning new things. I love the, I love being able to say last week I didn't know something, but this week now I know how to do it. Or being able to kind of that switch from darkness to lightness, as, as I like to say. And it's probably the reason why originally and kind of to start out, I was really attracted to the tech space because that's something where you know you got a you know piece of code that's not working, you make a change, and now it works. And like I said, you're going from dark to light. So that that's really what I would say, kind of at my core. Um, it is, and, and it's sort of what driven me in my career to this point. So where did you grow up? Are you a Colorado kid originally? Because I know you, you got the Mines baseball thing there. I think you did play baseball at Mines, but wh- where did you grow up and, and why Mines? I, I tried to play baseball at Mines. No, I, <laughs> I did. Oh, so I grew up in Colorado. I was a Southeast Denver guy. So for all you local Colorado guys, Parker and Arapahoe um, was, was, was my landing zone. I went to a little uh, Grandview out there, which was a pretty large at that time. I mean, consider not for Texas, but in, in Colorado terms, it was a pretty larger, uh, larger school. Um, heard about mines really through my dad. My dad's an aerospace engineer, works in the defense industry, but had always kind of chirped in the back of my mind, "Hey, you know, you should go to mines. You should go to mines. Really good school. Really good school." And I, I didn't necessarily want to be an engineer per se. I, I was definitely good enough at math and science to be like, if I wanted to, I could. I was more interested in in mainly economics, finance. I had this crazy idea I was going to go work on Wall Street. I, I was building, nice. you know, early Python programs to try to, you know, predict the stock market, things that today are completely outdated. But that was really where my, my focus was. And that was kind of where I was, let's say, you know, a la junior, senior year of high school. 
got an opportunity to go to a, like a baseball showcase, just kind of my mom was like, hey, you should go there. One of the Minds coaches was there, had an opportunity to talk with him. It's kind of funny. I, I, he's, he's a good friend of mine to this day, but I joke with him. The first conversation I had with him was, hey, there's a spot for everybody in college baseball, but he told me, D2 may not be for you. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm going to state school then. And I kind of resigned myself to like, okay, high school will finish. I'll, baseball at least will finish and I'll move on and just and, 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 and retire, as they would say, even though it's hard to say you retire as a high school athlete. Um, but driving home from practice my senior year one day, I get a call from uh, coaches, hey, we got a spot open up. You coming? And I'm, I'm like on my way home. I got multiple buddies in my backseat. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess. Let me give you, I'll give you a call back tonight. So that's actually what what really spurred me going to Mines. To be honest, I hadn't even applied or been accepted wow. at that point. I was ready to go to uh, CU at that point. Which shout out Coach Prime. We'll get to that. But uh, oh yeah, um, as we record this, that was that was fun. But um, so that's really what, what got me to Mines. And I kind of showed up there wide eyed and, and, and blue eyed, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Again, I really wanted to study kind of finance, economics. They did have an economics program there, but as my dad kind of said, you're going to an engineering school, figure out some sort of engineering to do, and 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 then you can kind of pivot from there. And that's really what I did. I kind of I tried my hand at a lot of different things, fell in and took at that time, I took in a class called Intro to Petroleum, and that's really was my first introduction to oil and gas business. I had no connections to this business growing up. My my mom lived in Montana, so you knew of the business, but there was they, they lived nowhere near oil. My dad was again worked in the Defense Department, it was more kind of the mechanical engineering flavor. So part of the reason I fell in love with the business was the fact that it was really everything was so intertwined with economics. And that's what I liked it. The entire and you can go to say this about every industry. So I think it's it's not unique necessarily to say that. But it was the first time somebody explained to me an industry that at the end of the day, if the if it's not profitable to go drill this well, we're just going to go move on and do something else. And for right. some reason, that just clicked in my mind and was just like, this is what I want to do. It, and it was also, and, and, and we could, you could, you know, there were people, much smarter engineers in, in who would maybe disagree with me, but it, petroleum engineering to me, at least as a major and as an actual practicing profession, seems a little bit more art than science. And maybe there's some science to it, but there's a little bit of an art to it. I mean, your workspace is 10,000 feet below. Sometimes it's a matter of we've got to gather the preponderance of evidence of whether or not we think there's hydrocarbons here. And we're never going to know for sure until we pop that pop a hole and see what happens. And so yeah. that also attracted me as somebody who had a little bit of an analytical mind and, and you know, at some level enjoyed a little bit of an argument because you'll never know 100 <laughs> um, percent on any of that stuff. So that that's really what attracted me to the business. Um, fast forward a couple of years. I took a red shirt because I actually had the Tommy John surgery, the ACL for the elbow. So wow. I actually went five. I went I squeezed four years into five. Um, and, and ended up uh, graduating uh, both in petroleum engineering, but I ended up getting an economics degree as well, mainly so that I didn't have to go like work in the field. I, I liked the oil and gas business, but I was pretty set on, I really wanted to study finance and I was really trying to latch on with maybe some investment banks, some, some sort of financial institution. But having worked a bunch of odd job internships, I interned at Uber, I interned at a few co companies that were anywhere near the oil and gas business. It the options, especially when I was graduating 2014 to, to 2015, looking for jobs, and all the business we just fell off a cliff. And so, not having the blue chip internships, and not necessarily um, um, really forced me to not get creative, but look elsewhere. And so that's actually how I kind of fell into what I would say the world of oil and gas tech, and kind of put me on 
what I would say a more non-traditional path really until I got to King. So that's kind of kind of how I got to Mines in a nutshell and 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 really what set me up. I'm I'm, I'm kind of a, a product again. I knew very little about the oil and gas business before I, I took that and and uh, I, I'm never going elsewhere now that I know. And then you just ran with it. So yeah. is it your mom or your dad that, that speaks 300 words a minute? Who'd you get that from? Uh, yeah, it's probably my mom. <laughs> not the engineer. Not, not the engineer. My dad is very calculated. Um, and he's, he's very by the books, by the numbers. And, and I like that. But I think it's part of the reason I was attracted to petroleum engineering was because it's a little bit, you know, with my dad, he, he works on satellites. So if it's got to be, you got to know the exact precise location. You should always tell me. Lockheed Martin blew billions of dollars because they didn't, uh, they, they forgot to round correctly. And it's like, oh my goodness, that seems, mm. you know, for me, the oil and gas business, there was that art that got uh, smushed into it really allowed me to kind of use, not necessarily my creative side, but allows me to maybe use that natural argument. My mom was a lawyer at one point, so maybe that's where I get it. Interesting. Wow. Um, so what was your first job out of school then? So it was a, it's a really small oil and gas tech startup, and I wouldn't even call them a tech startup. I think they pivoted more into engineering consulting. But I got an internship um, with 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 a with a guy. He was who was looking to to kind of do what a lot of people did, kind of in that 2012 to 2016 to 2018 timeframe. Was hey, I've got there's all these legacy on-prem softwares. I'm going to take right. a bunch of them and throw them in the cloud. I mean, it was no different than what a lot of those players were doing. And he had a, a you know, the own, his own little twist on it. But kind of the differentiator with him was he was looking to bootstrap that startup, which is probably a whole other conversation we could have on the merits <laughs> and disadvantages of bootstrapping versus not. But right. that was his belief was, hey, we're not going to bootstrap this. We're going to, you know, I'm going to hire the in-house tech. We're going to build it ourselves, and then we're going to, you know, do the cold outreach. Which, again, we can save that for the end. And really, what he was in order to bootstrap it, he was selling engineering consulting services. He's a professional engineer, so having that PE license, low hanging fruit for a PE is just third party engineering reports. And so that's really where I got hired, mainly as an intern uh, my last year, and then got hired on full time, or took an opportunity with them full time. Um, when I graduated was was mainly being kind of the, the data analyst for all the third-party reserve report engineering. I mean, I'm sitting here now with five screens, combo curve license, Inveris license. You can give me any license out there. We've got, we had none of that back then. So it was public websites for me. And it was really where I cut my chops in understanding where all of the, where all the public oil and gas data is. And I, and, you know, I wouldn't say building our own databases, but having to basically spin up small production and public databases for each of these projects. I mean, we, we, we would take, he had a lot of contacts in Wyoming. So that's probably the state I'm familiar with. We did a bunch of work okay. in the Powder River Basin. We did some stuff in the DJ, a lot of that stuff. BP's got some huge wells in Arapahoe County, by the way. If anyone's ever known that, there's huge wells they drilled in 2012. I remember looking those up like, holy smokes, we could find a few of those. My point is that's really where I cut my chops. And, and we did, I did that for about three, four years. Wow. And, 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 you know, I would say that took about 80% of my time. The other 20% of my time, I was just really watching how they were building this technology. And we had a few different applications that we were trying to build. One of them was a really rudimentary, like decline curve analysis tool that the goal was to then use on our use, use internally and test out on our reserve, on our third party engineering. Didn't work well at all. He ended up doing it all on Excel. So um, the original beta test didn't go well, but 
What we did actually find some, a little bit of product market fit was is actually about this. It's basically the same thing that Engage mobilized, which is now Engage came up with asset tracking. We had a, it was, it was more all mobile though. It was based on the mobile phone. Um, you know, it was a, a web app you could log into. And while I, the product didn't necessarily go anywhere, clearly you've heard of Engage and not who we were. Um, it was really cool to see that full life cycle of there was an idea. There was a, you know, a customer that needed, had a need seeing us workshop the idea through design, building, testing it, and actually deploying it into production, which was really cool to see kind of in a full life cycle. And again, kind of gave me a unique perspective on, I got to, you know, really see how to get your hands dirty and see something kind of go start to finish, which is really cool. So a lot of people don't get to see that. I know you, with your background, you've seen that. And it's, it's really cool to see something from go from idea to Oh my goodness! Now it's like not only you know we we got to the point where it was selling, but you've even been to the point where it's like oh my goodness, this is selling outrageously well. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like what you just described, either as an employee or as a founder, is is the magic. Yeah, and I love having people on the podcast who have lived that. Um, and it's not easy. Like in 2012, you know, you kind of mentioned that that time frame there was just less. There was less tech. Things were less sophisticated. Almost everything, like you mentioned, was on-prem. And things really started to evolve, I think, kind of 16, 17, 18. And you started having these, like, you know, shout out Jim Thorson and his crew, these energy tech showcases right? in in Denver. And you'd have 34 different booths. And none of them were big companies. It was all Mm -hmm. these little guys who'd built amazing, majorly cloud-based tech. And I just loved it. I'm like, man, this is, you know, I've kind of been grinding in, in this arena and people being like, yeah, we're not quite ready to go to the cloud. And then boom, it's in your face. You have all these different companies, like you mentioned Engage, but there's a lot of companies like Engage, right? Engage had this idea. They started to execute on it. And then boom, last week we had Ironsight. A couple months ago, I had Spira Data. They're all sort of tangentially doing similar things, but it's, here's a problem that's paper oriented. It's in the field. How do we turn this into a piece of technology and, and made successful companies out of it, which is just mm-hmm. awesome, awesome to see. And even still, there's a lot more room for growth for these kind of earlier stage innovative tech companies um, within reason. You know, I, I do think, and, and I'm curious what you think about this. I've, I've said this to some of my clients and just to people in general that I feel like it is hard to be an oil and gas operator that's always looking at new technology because so many things look and sound like something else. Mm-hmm. How do you, and I understand you have a level of expertise, but how do you differentiate when somebody comes in and really figure out, okay, is this something that I already have? Is this something that's an add-on piece of technology? Is this something that will create value for us? Do you seek it out or do you have a lot of vendors coming to you and you kind of have to sift through what makes sense to actually take a look at it? I think being on the, the the operator side, you definitely get a little bit more of inbound than outbound. But but definitely me being a little bit younger and me being a little bit more on the forefront of tech, I, I luckily have a good sense of what I think we need. Yeah. Where where I struggle with and where I think companies that when they when they try to sell us and what I and what I what I've really had to learn really in this role is okay, great that we I know this tech can help, but I'm going to try to explain this to management who right. is not necessarily in the weeds every day. And is thinking about 
non-technical things. I mean, this isn't, we're not building SaaS here at King. We're trying to get oil out of the ground. So unless you can, uh, you know, the easiest way to tell me a tech's going to be helpful is if you tell me it's going to get us more oil out of the ground. The problem is a lot of the software that works in the background that we need doesn't do that. So you're, you're working through that kind of forest of trying to figure out where's the actual gold at the end of the rain, pot at the end of the rainbow, I guess. That's kind of the answer that management will say, oh, that's the reason why we need to, you know, invest this money in, you know, X project or, you know, migrate from, say, you know, one field reporting data application to another, which we just went through right now. Um, talking about WM, we were on an older legacy product and moving to that new product. It wasn't until there was an available integration with our ERP system to where we could then go to management and say, hey, now that reconciliation process that you've been wanting us to do for six months, not only can we do that if we move to the software, it can be automated and you can see that in your inbox X number of times you want. Ah, now it clicked. It's this cool. pitch for us, the need hadn't changed for six months. It was how do we convince that to management? And so that's really where the vendors who do that well and focus on that upper tier level, how do we convince management that this is something we need? That seems to work better than, you know, you know, me or, you know, specifically some engineer figuring out how much political capital they're willing to use on some certain product when really I don't want to lose any political capital. I need I need a way to convince management that we need this and so, and or or the or ability to give them all the information for them to say, I see where you're at, but here's where I'm at. That, I mean, that's so good. And I hope for all the salespeople listening to this, they they took copious notes because that is something that I preach and that some of my fellow kind of CROs and VP of sales types preach to salespeople is you're not going to sell a strategic tool to a tactical person, right? I'm going to, you're going to see a demo of what I have and I'm going to show you all of the amazing features and functions but for you to get approval for somebody to buy this, you have to bring this to Jay Young or whoever the CEO is of your company to write that check. Now I'm relying on you to describe to him why he should care about it. Not just you, but him. I'm going to become the salesperson. I got enough to worry about internally than trying to help you sell your product. And I mean that a little facetiously, but you're exactly right. And that's, and that's hard, right? So it, of course, I'm going to be more comfortable. Anyone's going to be more comfortable talking to you. You're young, you're into tech, you're receptive to it. Oil and gas, by default, is a risk-averse industry. And that means not overwhelmingly investing in technology to bring in. So it's actually my job as the salesperson to work with you and arm you and even ask you if I can get in front of the other people who are going to make the decision. Otherwise, I'm relying on Michael Tanner sales guy for my company selling this product and good luck with that yeah i'm i'm i, I can only be so convincing so um and <laughs> i'm only and again it comes back to this is just how it works the whole idea of political capital i've only got so much in my tank and i've got 20 other things i'm i need i would like to get done how right. much of that am i willing to give so the more as you said ammo you can give me to basically lay it all out there is extremely helpful. And I think if you kind of look at the vendors who we've, and the, you know, we've probably gone through a, in my three-ish years here at King, we've, we've, we've done a lot of different software, what I would call migrations or transitions or onboarding. I think the, the, the ones that have gone successful and the main reasons we went with it is because it was easy for management to grasp what the value add was. Yeah, that's such good stuff. 
tell me a little bit about like, are you guys like a hundred percent cloud with your tech stack? Is that something you've prioritized or is it a mix? Like, what does it look like for you? So up until fairly recently, it was, it was really mixed and it was actually on prem. We had a, a, a computer that we had just sitting in a server room that we had completely respawned windows server on. And basically every morning where I was running a set of scripts that went out and, you know, talked to our field, our field app, our, our field data capture apps for production, um, went out and talked to uh, Quorum's Wellies product, you know, for all the, the daily stuff, um, went out and grabbed some of our accounting information, which was all um, happened, happened to be dumped in manually via Excel spreadsheets, but you can do that at any point, these scripts will pick it up. So we were really, really manual up until about six months ago. And part of that is just because, it's really all we needed and, and overcomplicating the solution wasn't necessary. The problem was we started, we went into, we, we started running three rigs about eight months ago and the amount of data we went, went from here to about here and the staff stayed the exact same, which is, which is fine. But the amount of data we were ingesting, what we needed to do with that data really changed. We needed it to be a lot more actionable, not just from a reporting standpoint and a look back, but we got to now use this real-time data to look forward, specifically when we're talking about like day-to-day budgeting items. And, you know, for a smaller operator like us, our budget season is a little bit different than say Exxon. We don't just sit down for a month and set our budget for the next 2024. We kind of set our budgets on a rolling basis, which means we always need to have good line of sight on a real-time basis of what our data is looking like. So we realized pretty quickly that the what's happening is is getting pretty out of control um, just from a manual data standpoint. And we have we've taken some steps specifically changing out our ERP system and 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 changing out our field data capture app, which is the same vendor, W Energy, has really helped us kind of at least attempt to get the majority of our data, um, attempt to get the majority of the data into just one area where we can analyze it. Obviously, that's never going to happen unless you build something custom. And eventually, it would be really nice to go there. But really, what 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 happened with us was we were so fragmented in the technology stack that we were using, and we were able to kind of squash that all down from a majority standpoint, get it into one. And now we can reference that, you know, now it's more of a weekly it's more of a weekly update. We still have that on-site server that we use, but it's more of a weekly. All right, let's go out and get all the data for the week. Let's throw it in our in our data warehouse, and then that can be used for ad hoc reporting. But the real-time reporting and the real-time analysis, we've worked really hard to utilize the reporting tools within the application. This is another thing that I've 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 worked through is, you know, at King we have a lot of custom processes, and when I hear custom processes, I mean we're, we're, you're not doing it normally. And I mean that both ways. Like custom processes are good, but there's a reason why a very successful product has their workflow this way. It's because they've sold it to other companies whose workflow is like this. So if I'm in the middle of a, if I'm in the middle of trying to deploy a software and I needed them to make some monumental change, which causes their software to do this and this, I don't know if it's your software that's the problem or it's my process that's the problem. And so what we've had to do is rethink our processes a little bit to say, okay, yes, we've got all of these little custom niche things that we do, but if we're going to migrate to a software, we better be able to take full advantage of the features they offer, or there's no advantage to switching other than we've just made a lot of other people money but us. And therein lies the rub. Mm -hmm. Do, Do you adapt your processes to fit the workflows of an application, 
or does the vendor adapt their workflows to fit your possibly broken processes? And that's that's a really fundamental question, I think, not just in oil and gas, but at enterprise business in general. And it's really, I think, shifted more because of, of the apps world and SaaS in general to the the operator or the buyer starting to shift their best practices toward what the app or solution will do and say, okay, well, if this is what everybody else in the industry is doing, maybe it's what we should be doing too. And it allows us to look in the mirror and say, how can we use this as our best practices? Um, yeah, I think there are like, like, let's take, we're a small operator. So what we're doing is I would love to steal. I want to steal from industry best practices. If, right. you know, on, shoe on the other foot at ExxonMobil, they're going to have custom processes because they're right. the big boy in the room and that's what's going to happen. I, but I think from kind of our perspective, a smaller yeah. operator, it was a chance to, as you said, look back and uh, my processes are maybe a little screwed up. How do we shift them to fit that? And, and we did that specifically in our ERP implementation. And man, it was painful. We were in a data purgatory for four or five months, but we've come out on the other side a heck of a lot better because now we're able to use the we're able to use the actual processes within the system and not be relying on whether it's some third party to come in and you know clamp on and do what we need to do or or you know just spend manual hours of, of doing things. So I, I, I in my opinion, I, I'm, you know, and, and this is just coming from my experience, you. Generally, if you're working with a large enough vendor, they figured out what the process is because they've successfully sold this to a lot of other different people. So maybe, you know, for us, it was a little bit more of a look internal, but I, I think it does come down to a case-by-case -case basis. And if you're sitting at Exxon listening to this, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and you're small enough that being nimble is, is yes. you can do it. Like, I don't know how many users log in even to your ERP system, but it's not a lot, right? And how many people are looking at daily production reports or forecast versus actual it's not a ton, right? So even yep. for like a, a, a mid cap or obviously a large cap company, it's, it's different. And, yep. and I think you articulated that really well. I'm going to talk a little bit about the move. So like I said, when I met you, I think you were living in Golden, mm -hmm. um, had just finished up at Great Mine. Place. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, I'll have a, a question for you about Golden momentarily. But then King comes calling, says, hey, Michael, we think that you fit our, our culture. You're a versatile resource. Why don't you come move to Dallas? So here you are, a Colorado kid, a Denver area guy. You went to school in the Denver area. And then boom, now you live in Dallas, Texas. Talk to me a little bit about what that move has been like for you. So it's been good. So I, you know, when I left my, my, my first job at that oil and gas tech startup, I actually fell into the, what I would call the consulting world of the work for yourself. Well, just by accident, the first, what I would say customer I had, I actually thought I was just interviewing at a job. I got done with the interview and she goes, so can you fit me in with all your other clients? And I remember looking at my watch <laughs> like, yeah, I guess I can actually like, I've, you know, it was enough to, I mean, it was enough at that time to pay my bills. There was a little bit left over. I'm like, Wait, 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 I can go get a few more of these now? So that's that's what sort of set me on that path of award result. Sure. Award for myself. It's where I met Stu, and it's really where I was introduced to the King management team. Um, so I actually, oh. before I joined full-time at King, which was a little over a year ago, I was actually contracted for them, basically doing the exact same thing I'm doing now, but just sitting in that golden apartment, um, um, hopping on Zooms every day. Um, back when, I mean, you know, we're sitting here in a really nice office now, King's over 55, 60 employees. I remember my first meeting I hopped on, it was basically the whole company. There was like eight of us. Now I was a contractor at that point, but it's been really cool to see the evolution. And so really in 
through my kind of part-time consulting career with them, that's when we kind of had that initial boom. And when I joined, we were probably full-time, say 30, 35 people. Um, today, we sit about 60. I think it's also important to mention King is a, is a private oil and gas operator, and we raise money from the retail space. So I would say about half of our staff is dedicated to what I would call partner relations, sales, and marketing efforts. So if you're looking at kind of from an operations standpoint, I would say there's 20 to 25 of us if you include finance and accounting in that. So just to kind of give you guys an idea of the level we're at. 60 people is a lot, but I think when we talk about kind of the core oil and gas operations, um, it's somewhere between 20 and 25. Oh, that's but, really it is. So they, 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 they called, um, you know, them already being a client of mine was like, okay, well, I'm definitely going to lose them as a client if I don't take this job. But at, at some point being in Colorado and, and as much as I love Denver as a city, you know, the oil and gas is, is it's slowly, unfortunately due to consolidation and due to everyone shifting focus down, down to Texas, that the opportunities are slowly shriveling. And I knew at some point being in the oil and gas business, Texas was going to come calling my name. You yeah. figure you got Midland, Dallas, Houston. I'll take Dallas over all of that. Um, it worked out really well with with kind of my living situation, and was an opportunity again to to go work maybe a little bit more of a in a corporate environment, um, considering where I had worked it uh, previously. And and having known the team, being able to come in on and and having again know the management team, know the processes, feel like I come in with a little bit of I don't want to say cachet, but a little bit of ability to actually feel like I'm going to make an impact and not just be sitting really sitting cool. back on my heels to begin with. Now, I, I'm, I'm still on my heels to this day because in the, in the, in the small private world, things move extremely quickly, um, but I wouldn't want it any other way. It's how, it's how I like to operate previously, but that's really how I got in, um, introduced to them. And, and it's been, it's been fun. You know, I, I will say this is my, my first job was work from home. I was working from home as a consultant. So it took me about seven years before I finally showed up to an office like this. And uh, it's not bad actually. Well, it looks like a nice office, so I'll give you that. And when I get out down to Dallas next, I, I need to plan a trip. I've got a couple of clients down there. Um, you know, I've been saying this to everybody in Texas, though, because I go to Houston a lot. I go to Dallas a little bit less, but I go to Houston a lot. And people have been like, hey, when are you coming back to Houston? I'm like, November, because, man, yeah. it has been hot. <laughs> I, I am, I'm dying. To be honest with you, so this is my first real summer in Texas. I showed up last year September-ish, so I got a little bit of like, oh my goodness, this is bad. I'm this summer has 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 killed me, but I've made it here. I've slowly gotten here, but it's brutal, man. I'm dying. The, the office is air conditioned, so you got yes, that. and I've still got two fans running in here. You can't see them, but they're running. Do Do you actually ever get out in the field? And where are your field operations? So we're scattered. Um, we have what I would call six different main ass operating assets. So we have, a, you know, and, and all of these are, I would say under 45 different, under 45 wells. So it's not like they're expansive, wow. but we have, we have 45, we have about 40, 45 wells in Colorado. Um, we have two wells in Wyoming. Um, we have about 90 operated wells in the, the Midcon areas scattered between mostly the Texas side of the panhandle. Um, but we also have some Oklahoma, Kansas. Um, we have about, eight to 10, what I would call East Texas wells. Um, and then we have our, our, our main asset, which is our, our, our West Texas asset, our Borden County asset, which is Northeast Borden County, kind of the edge of the Midland Basin, edge to edge of the Midland Basin. 
um, which is we've got over 17,000 uh, gross acres somewhere. It's like 14,000 net that we're um, in the process of doing a, a five-well drilling plan, which is, has everybody pretty excited. So we're fairly spread out a little bit. It's, it's again, small number of, of operator wells. Um, again, we're, a, we're an oil and gas private partnership. So the, the, the Midcon asset was one company that we, we, we purchased for a small amount. The Colorado was another operator that we purchased. Um, and then East Texas was another operator that we purchased. Um, so all together, they kind of make up the, the main three fields. And then the West Texas was actually more of a, was a, was a lease only deal that we started. Um, so the only wells on there are wells that we've drilled, but um, our legacy wells somewhere sit at between 170 to 190. So we're scattered all over. I do get into the field, um, uh, which is nice. It's mainly because we drilled a well, we drilled two wells over in East Texas um, that we haven't completed yet, but we were still sitting on the docks. Um, so I was able to go watch that full, full drilling site. And it's tough drilling. East Texas Cotton Valley, tough drilling, but uh, really, it, it's cool to be on. Um, I really cool to see, and and really, what's cool again, going back to what we talked about earlier, the I, the idea of having an idea, seeing it develop, and then seeing the end game. When I started at King, I was in the meeting where someone said, "Hey, we've got this. We just purchased this East Texas asset. I wonder if there's anything to drill on it." Fast forward two years later, I'm I'm on the drilling grid while we're drilling this thing. Man, again, come come full circle. I remember hearing when we this was just an idea, and now to be standing here is pretty crazy. So, um, again, that's one thing about King that I really liked is I've been able to see much like we talked earlier that full life cycle of idea. Let's go get the land. Let's go put together the AFE. Hey, this actually may make sense economically. Let's go drill this. Let's go put together, spud the well, and then to kind of see it all the way through is, is, is really fun. Right. And then let's see what the production looks like versus what we yeah. forecasted on it. And what is it, cash flow? Like you're you're looking at all of, I mean, it's cool, right? I, I, this yep. is what I like about smaller operators in general is everybody sort of looks end to end. My, my buddy, Rob Hembry at, at Green Lake Energy, he heads up IT over there. But he's like really involved for an IT guy, right? He's pulling up his phone and saying, okay, I'm watching like my real-time SCADA feed right now to show what production looks like on one of our new pads right now, Um, which is neat. You don't get that from every single IT guy. And also, of course, at scale, you can't do that, right? But but for a company like them who has, I don't know, 30-some-odd wells, yeah, that's that's what you do. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to uh, what I like to call rapid fire. I... Didn't prep you for any of these questions, but right. I know you talk fast. You think quicker. So I'm going to just throw some things at you and you're going to give me your best answer. Okay. okay. Your favorite restaurant in Golden. Oh, um, it has to be Golden Mill. Um, it's a hybrid restaurant, but it's also more of like a two-level bar. It's actually new. It's only been there about two years. But if you're in Golden, you got to hit Golden Mill. You've also got Woody's is great. You've got the unlimited pizza if you're a pizza fan. Um, I'm trying to think what else is there. I actually worked at a, I worked at a line cook at Joe Lynn's, which is right there on Washington. Um, so if you're, if you're, you know, I wouldn't say the food's the greatest considering they let me be the line cook, but I mean, <laughs> eating guacamole and learned, I was more of the prep cook. I wouldn't say I was a line cook. So I, to this day, I can make a guacamole super quick because of that. Uh, but I have to go with Golden Miller Woody's just depending on, or Sherpa House. I love me some Sherpa House. I don't know if you've been there. I've been to Sherpa House. Golden Mill, I think it's new, but I think I know where it is. Um, my favorite, I think, is Alibaba's. Okay, yep. You know Alibaba's up on uh, just right off of Six. Yep. Um, so I used to live in El Dorado Springs and work in Lakewood. My first job in oil and gas 
was selling software, uh, accounting software at a company called Bolo. And every single day, I always told myself I was, I was going to appreciate this, but I drove from El Dorado Springs, which is basically like South Boulder to Lakewood. And I drove 93 to six every single day, right wow. along the, the mountains, really through the foothills, basically. And I said, um, I'm not going to take this for granted. It would be some dicey drives in the snow. This is sort of before working from home was okay. So if I had to be in at 7am for a demo and I'm looking at the weather, I'm like, uh, I think it's going to take me like an hour and 15 minutes today versus, you know, the usual 30. Yeah. Minutes. Holy smokes. Yeah. But I would drive by golden all the time. Right. So pick up food for the wife to, to bring home that yeah. even before kids. Um, and ended up hitting up a lot of the places that you mentioned, but, but good memories and, and golden's definitely a special place for those who, who haven't been. Um, how many games does the university of Colorado go coach prime win this year in football? I was actually looking at our schedule a couple like after we PTC. So I grew up, um, my parents uh, both did not go to CU or CSU, kind of the two state schools. So I had no real affiliation. All I know is when I really started caring about sports, CU sucked at football. So we kind of growing, yeah. kind of growing up, the punchline was, ah, CU sucks, man. Maybe eventually they'll make it back to their, their glory. It was more that early 90s period, um, which is when they were really good. I was pretty pumped when they when they signed uh, Coach Prime. I thought it was really cool. Um, but I'm a I'm full fledged on the bandwagon right now. I was actually at the TCU game last week because I'm in Fort Worth. Seriously? So I was like, oh, oh, I bought a ticket and I was there. I had my Coach Prime shirt on. Um, it, it was awesome. Um, I think they'll probably do nine wins. You know, I, I think. Wow. I think they're going to do nine wins. I think they'll they'll we'll lose the USC. Um, but I think we're going to have a couple more upsets. We'll definitely, again, say lose to USC, but I'll probably, I'll, I'm going to go nine. If you got to put my neck out there. Uh, that's, I mean, that's aggressive. I actually went on my DraftKings betting app. I, not that I need to give them any extra pub. They're not sponsoring this podcast or anything, but I went on the DraftKings app and they the over under was like five or something like that. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm hitting that over for sure. Yeah, I love so it. Love it. Need what? Four, four more, five more yeah. of those. And, and I got it. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I think that they're amazing. I love Deion Sanders. Like, you know, I'm I'm about twice your age <laughs> or around there. And I remember him being Neon Dion, right? Playing for the Yankees and the Braves and the Falcons and the, mm-hmm. the Cowboys, the 49ers. And he was just ahead of his time kind of with how flashy he was and, and how sort of blunt um, and just how talented he was. And I've said this before, even before he was the coach, uh, you know, 10 minutes away from me, that. I just love that I was put on this earth at the same time as Deion Sanders That's because he's just amazing. And if you look at some of his interviews now, he had one and maybe you saw this, it was all over Instagram. He's like, what about me makes you think that I care about your opinion of me? Right. Because your opinion of me is not the opinion that I have of myself. And it really kind of resonated with me because, you know, we all have so much self doubt and it's easy to take other people's opinions of you as the fact of how you exist in the world. But somebody like that is really telling you, have your opinion of yourself and don't worry about other people's opinions of you. Yep. And I think that, that is really, really good advice and, and stuff that I wish that I'd heard when I was even younger uh, to get through some of the self-doubt of people saying, well, you know, I mean, I can't even tell you in the amount, in interviews, I remember in my late 20s, somebody saying, you know, maybe you're just not a sales guy. And I took that to heart. I remember sitting down as an interview. They obviously didn't hire me sitting down and I'm having this life crisis. Like maybe I shouldn't be a sales guy. Like what am I doing? Right. 
And now if I look back at my track record of what I've done in oil and gas tech, like I'm definitely a sales guy and I'm very accomplished. Yeah. At I'm glad that, that I didn't let that person's opinion overly affect me. Um, but, but it's easy to do that. So anyways, back to the, the rapid fire question. So over or under, how many years do you think you'll live in Texas? Oh, yikes. Do, are other people at my job watching? No, I'm just kidding. I, I'd probably put it four, probably over under four. I'd probably take the under. I'm probably here three to four years, to be honest. You think you move back to Colorado? I do. I mean, these, I, I do. I do. If, I, if we're doing rapid fire, we could go on for another 10 minutes about why I flip flop maybe, but rapid fire, three to four years. The curse of Chief Niwat has officially made its way to you. And for yeah. those who don't know about that, they, they should look it up. But um, I don't think I can ever leave at this point, man. I've been here for 20 years come October, which makes this the place I grew up in New Hampshire, lived there for 18, uh, lived in the Boston area for college and a year after. So that made five and now 20 years here. So I've actually spent more time here than anywhere. And it would, man, it would be tough to leave this place. I, I love you, it. you don't realize how spoiled we are with the weather there. I mean, it's, right. you know, it's I, everything I took for granted, but we, we could spend, we could do a whole other episode on just why, why on cool stuff to do in Colorado, but we'll share we'll you guys. I love it. Um, what to you, what does the oil and gas industry look like in, in five years? Do you think that a company like King or really any oil and gas company starts moving more toward drilling geothermal wells? Do you think this is more of a carbon capture sequestration industry is, um, the environmental impacts starting to creep in. I think you just saw the other day with Joe Biden canceling leases and, and shutting down pipelines. And wh where do you think the oil and gas industry sits five to 10 years from now? Yeah. So, I, you know, this was one of the questions you sent over before. And I, and I actually, I thought a little bit about this and I've, and, and one of them I'm, 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 I'm kind of zigging when everyone's zagging on this one. So I think that the theme right now is console, especially in, in Colorado, it's consolidation. The only way to stay alive is consolidate up and integrate your systems. And it's, there's going to be seven operators in five to 10 years. I actually am going to zag on that one and say, I actually think that in five to 10 years, your smaller operators, your kings, and even smaller are going to have a much more massive advantage on being able to move quickly. For a lot of the stuff that you talked about with your, your IT, your, your, the Greenlight company, you're just able to pull up the stuff on your phone. There are certain companies that because they're so larger companies as they get bigger, you start seeing layers and layers come in. I mean, even here at King, I'm seeing the difference between how we made a decision a year ago versus to how we're making a decision today. The timeline takes a lot longer. There's there's generally more people involved. This is another Dion quote I love. A committee has never made the Hall of Fame. That's a very <laughs> interesting quote. A committee. So you start having all these committees in your decision, it's like, okay, you know, whether or not you come to what a right conclusion is for anyone's discussion, but it, the time frame in which decisions go longer. And I think as with, with things rapidly changing, as you mentioned, with all the different ways that you could shift, whether it is carbon capture, whether it is, you know, geothermal or, you know, lease by, by an administration or even what assets are going to be problems. I think the ability to move quickly is going to be paramount. And I think smaller companies are actually going to have an advantage over larger companies even though, yes, on a macro level, consolidation probably makes the industry work more efficiently yeah. on paper. I don't necessarily know if I buy that. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and I think that viewpoint is definitely from someone who lived in, in Colorado and who lives here now. The DJ Basin, which is an amazing oil and gas field, 80% um, of the production is run by three operators. Yep. 
And that was not the case when, when I first got into oil and gas 15 years ago. It was... Now, they're doing cool stuff up there. Not to say that they're just sitting on their hands and doing not doing cool stuff, but at some point, innovation has to be, you know, there, there can't be seven la- Innovation's never seven layers away from happening. It's usually a guy's got an idea, and he's got an ability to execute it pretty quickly. Yep, yep. And I think, like you said, that's where companies start, but then just the nature of a growing company, you do have layers and different approvals, and, and, and that's sort of how things work. Um, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a valuable and, and interesting viewpoint for sure. I want to talk about sales presentation because you actually gave me a sales presentation and showed me a product that you'd built at some point. Any stories where you tripped over your shoes or anything incredibly embarrassing that you've seen in a presentation either delivered to you or where you delivered the demo itself? Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, I've been in some pretty interesting, in some pretty interesting sales calls. I mean, a lot of the selling I'm doing is more getting, you know, relationships and and trying to build up trust with somebody because a lot of what I was doing was project-based. What yeah. what's funny is what, what I was showing you was my attempt at taking a project I had worked on, which um, was for one of my was for one of my clients who introduced me to an operator um, who happens to be in Colorado who happened to just gotten bought. Um, and they were attempting to figure out, it was back during SP um, 181, and there was the whole regulatory shift on what was going on in Colorado. And I had built a, 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 a something that allowed them to help make them more quickly analyze whether or not a piece of, a piece of some acreage that they had fell within or out of compliance of this rule. And if it was out of compliance, what were sort of the factors that caused it to come out of compliance and not. And so yeah. that was an attempt to say, hey, there's actually somebody using this project or this this tool that we create. Is there a way to make it more user-friendly to where more people could do it? And I, no, the answer is probably no, because as we sit here today, nobody else really bought, uh, bought on it. But I think, you know, I would say for me, it was just, the fact of just getting out there and saying, hey, I've, I've got something that somebody's using. Maybe there's a need to see if somebody else uses it. Um, we, have, we, we got one other person maybe interested, but I would say that's that's going to be kind of the the, the most of announced. Uh, I would say that's probably the, the only, I would say, product sale I've made. I do remember being on a, on a one call close where I, I some guy met, posted on LinkedIn and said, hey, I need some, some database work, blah, blah, blah. Shoot me a message for details. Sent me his number. A day later, we were doing business together and had a contract signed. So that's probably the highlight. I remember thinking, man, this is easy. I can do this all day. Yeah. It's like hitting a home run in your first at bat. And then yep. you're like, oh, okay. They started throwing curveballs. Crap. Yeah. Now exactly. What? Which is when I quit baseball. But it sounds like you could hit a curveball decently. I was a pitcher. I couldn't hit worth it. Oh, you were a pitcher? Oh, Yes, I was a pitcher. So um, shout, uh, shout out uh, Rick Rail, VP of finance over at Kimridge. He was a pitcher at Mines, nice. and I think he topped out at like 92, 93 miles an hour. It's interesting at Mines where you it's D2, and there's not yep. a lot of D2 schools. But you have some guys who are like clearly D3 caliber and some guys who are D1 caliber, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you get a real mix in terms of the talent level. Um, and you sort of play both, right? Like you play D1 schools and you play D3 schools. So you play, yeah, a lot of those are non-conference. We, we would go play Northern Colorado a bunch, uh, which ironically, we, you know, in my few years there, we were actually fairly similar to them. Mesa, Colorado Mesa over Grand Junction is kind of the big dog of the RMAC. Um, and they get a lot of D1, oh yeah, they get a lot of kind of ex-D1 transfers that are from Colorado who want to 
it's on the other side. It's on that western slope. So you can kind of – it feels like it's isolated, but you're, it's gorgeous over there in Grand Junction, that fruit area. Holy smokes. Um, but – but yeah, so I, I barely, you know, the, 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 it was kind of funny the the, the phrase of, of, you know, the NCAA had, they've got like, you know, D1, the, the phrase for D2 was I chose D2. And we used to always joke, no, 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 no D2 chose us. <laughs> and nobody chooses D2, they cho- it chose us. But, yeah. uh, but no, it's, uh, but no, but yeah, mine's baseball. I, I remember watching my first practice thinking, oh, wow, I can actually play here too. By the time we finished, we were second in the division and, and really rolling people outside of Mesa. Um, still bummed that we never got a chance to, to slip that ring. We were one out away from a, from a ring. I'll, I'll always, wow. always remember. I think that's, that's probably what you remember most is, is how close you got versus some of those, some of those, some of those wins. But, uh, but no, great, oh, great times there. Of course. I mean, you see behind me, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. So for all the agonizingly close years, they've they've certainly broken through in the last uh, 20 or so, which has been awesome. But I can relate to being one out of way. Final question I want to ask you before we shut this down is you're a young guy, but I love asking my guests this. Like, what advice would you give to your younger self? And for you, maybe that's even your high school self. Like, What advice would you would, would you want to give now that you've gained at least a little bit more wisdom? I think constantly continue to take advice. You know, I think if you, I, you know, being a guy who, who, who I, I, I'm very confident in my, in, in my abilities, I sometimes think I know what's going on. And I think there, there's been a lot of advice I didn't take that looking back, it's like, man, I wish I would have taken that. And if you look yeah. at the few pieces of advice I did take, going to mines, um, there's a few other life decisions split in there, like great advice from people who are in my circle and me being receptive to that has really been helpful. And I can, you know, we could talk again for all of the podcasts about the advice that was given to me that I didn't even, that I didn't even consider because of, ah, I know better than that. And so if I were to, you know, sit myself down, I would say, you know, just listen a little bit more, continue to, you know, people who are older than you, that they're, they're smart too. You know, they've got some wisdom on them and, 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 and be a sponge, you know, and I think I would definitely say over the past few years, I've, 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 I've heated that specific advice really well and uh, just continue to take, take advice. I don't know it all, unfortunately, even though I wish I did. Two ears, one mouth. Yep. You know, and, and that, that I remember hearing that in my late twenties and like, why didn't somebody tell me that sooner? And I think one, one thing that you'll realize too is you do know a lot now, I will say. You're, you've evolved and, and you've really kind of immersed yourself in all of this. But as I get older, I realize I know very little. Oh, yeah. you know, you start and there's levels to how much depth you can get into versus kind of learning at a, at a surface level. But really impressed with what you've got going on. Michael, where can people find you? Uh, website, LinkedIn, all those sorts of things. Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search Michael Tanner. I'm on Twitter. Um, I also have, have a podcast I do with with the aforementioned Stuart Turley. You can check us out at Energy Newsbeat. Um, we have a website, energynewsbeat.com. I dub it as the world's greatest energy news website. Um, you can you can check us out there. But no, I, Jeremy, again, I appreciate it. This has been fun, and uh, I, I hope uh, I hope it's been useful. And, and no, again, appreciate it. Man, keep crushing it out there. Appreciate you coming on, Michael.